Welcome to the Gaggle Podcast, where we bring you inside the newsroom to talk Arizona politics beyond what's in print. I'm Michael Squires, the politics editor at the Arizona Republic and azcentral.com. Joining me this week at our Arizona Capitol Bureau are... Mary Jo Pitzel, investigative reporter. Ron Hansen, I cover the congressional delegation. Yvonne Winget Sanchez, I cover the governor's office and state politics. This week on the gaggle, controversy as officials vet the referendum to overturn an expansion of the state's school voucher program. Where does this end up? Spoiler, it ends up in court. And investigations into reports of child neglect have dropped, even as the number of calls to Arizona's child abuse hotline have held steady. We'll discuss what we know and don't know about that, but we start with Congresswoman Kirsten Sinema as she edges closer to a Senate run. Ron, just how close is that edging getting? I would say that it's measured in days, not months at this point. Her office continues to be coy about what her intentions are, but it's clear from all the, uh, all the chatter that we've been able to uh, gather that she is going to jump in for the Democrats to run against Jeff Flake next year. Uh, that will create some interesting openings for the House seat that she currently occupies and uh, raise some questions of, as to what the Republican response might be as well. So you reported that uh, both Kirsten Sinema and Phoenix Mayor Greg Stanton had met with uh, Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer. What was that about? Trying to figure out who's going to be the Democratic nominee next year. They're trying to size up this race. It's important. Jeff Flake's seat is one of the two that Democrats nationally think they can be competitive in next year in the Senate, uh, along with Nevada's Dean Heller. Uh, They think that this is an opportunity for a pickup. in Jeff Flake's case, they they still don't have any top-tier candidates who have jumped in. It's now mid-August, and there's a desire to sort of get somebody out there to show that this seat will not be just conceded next year. But what you also have happening at the same time is anybody who needs to get in that race also needs to put up a campaign uh, to raise money, to get organized and bring staff on board to help make that happen. It's getting later in the calendar. Kirsten Cinema has all that architecture in her house campaign, but that's not, it's not okay for everyone else then who needs to run for her seat if she runs for the Senate. So both of these uh, candidates, if they do run, uh, I'm both I'm mentioning Cinema uh, and Flake would face primaries. Um, how are those shaping? Is it, are, are they both formidable favorites if they were to run? I think that both of them would be seen as the favorites. I think they're in for a bumpy ride. We've already seen it with Jeff Flake to this point with Kelly Ward, uh, really kind of bringing some uh, uh, heat from the right. And this is agitating people who see Flake as being soft on things like immigration reforms. Uh, they also, uh, it's a chance for them to sort of rehash the 2016 election and his continuing uh, attacks on the president. Uh, they see that as being not in the Republican spirit and in the best interest of the party. Um, for Kirsten Cinema, this is someone who has been uh, very cooperative with Republican lawmakers during her tenure in Congress to this point. And she's someone who has made noises about immigration reforms as well that has angered people on the left. And this is something that could be difficult for her, especially in the immigrant community, the Latino community, 
uh, moving forward. But Ron, how much of a problem would that be if she got to a general election? I mean, voters keep saying they want people who will work across the aisle. You know, that's a big part of cinema's sales pitch, isn't it? It is. Uh, this is very much who she uh, presents herself to be. She's, you know, wears purple all the time. It's on her website. She is the post red, post blue. She's purple all the time as a problem solver and, and getting stuff done kind of member of Congress. But the the challenge for both of them is to get to that point. I think both of them will be better served in a general than they would be in a primary. Get the latest Arizona political news by subscribing to azcentral.com. Get our free email newsletter delivered to your inbox by visiting newsletters.azcentral.com. So the big story over the weekend were these uh, demonstrations by white supremacists in Charlottesville, Virginia, and then their clashes with counter-protesters. Uh, one of them, of course, died in that. Donald Trump, of course, has, has kind of gotten sideways in his reaction to that. First said that there was there were issues on all sides. People were saying, look, we have white supremacists on one side and you have people who disagree with Nazis on the other. There's clearly not an equality there. Uh, but then he came out with kind of more you know, on point remarks, and then I guess has sort of backed away. Um, what has been the reaction to the delegation? Yeah, the reactions uh, came in throughout the weekend, and they sort of ran the gamut. Uh, we had from Ruben Gallego, a Democrat um, who was pretty active, even on Friday, noting that he was alarmed by what he was seeing in Charlottesville then, um, and he reacted to the president's remarks, calling him uh, in a tweet storm a racist and a coward. So uh, Gallego, as usual, really sort of holding up the leftmost uh, flank of, of reaction, uh, all the way to the last person to weigh in uh, on Sunday was Andy Biggs, who really kind of offered a, a bland, all-purpose uh, regret that there was violence uh, involving people. It, it really didn't single out white supremacists. It didn't condemn racism. Um, it was sort of late and uh, very generic. It was interesting to see how the reactions uh, rolled out on the statewide level. The state Democratic Party weighed in first, expressing regret and said they do not support this sort of behavior, period. Governor Ducey didn't weigh in until late Sunday night, where he says he categorically 100% condemns neo-Nazism, the KKK, the Klan, race, white supremacy groups, and the violence and hate that they preach, saying there was no place for it in Arizona. And then the state uh, Republican Party weighed in on uh, Monday morning. But it does beg the question, I mean, are, are people looking to these local leaders? Well, I mean, I think the, the, the question at, or the issue at the heart of the protests were these Confederate memorials. And in that case, there are state memorials, and the governor certainly could have an impact there. Yes, and I think what the governor has to say, I mean, he is the governor of all the people, as he often reminds us, and he's up for election next year. And, you know, if I can jump in on this, uh, one thing to, to note as well, Martha McSally didn't offer any public remarks. Uh, I think she had some personal issues to address at the time. And uh, she is expected to be issuing an address, uh, uh, something to note her condemnation of this as well. So in fairness, Andy Biggs was not the last. He was the last so far. Uh, one other thing is that the the 
issue of these symbols and and such i mean this is a symbolic issue it's also looking for leadership from people uh in a position to sort of frame the the way that the public should think of these things and so i don't know that it changes the debate terribly but they're making attention bringing attention to themselves for all the wrong reasons for handling this as clumsily as they have the governor sort of stepping into this and, and raising questions about what is it that he wants to preserve about Confederate monuments instead of uh, recognizing the Civil War for you know slavery and, and everything else that went with it? So, Yvonne, you reported that uh, President Donald Trump might make his first appearance in Arizona as the nation's chief executive this next week. Is that still the case? It's looking like it. Uh, we are told an announcement is imminent. Uh, sounds like he will probably make an appearance Tuesday evening, uh, thousands are probably expected as they, you know, have attended before. It's unclear what specifically he'll talk about. Uh, A couple people familiar with his plans uh, say they would expect uh, a potential appearance by former Maricopa County Sheriff Joe Arpaio, who, as we all know, is uh, hoping for a pardon in the wake of his uh, criminal conviction. And... uh, we could probably expect the president to invoke Jeff Flake's name, uh, given the book that uh, he has penned. And that book has apparently irked Trump and some senior advisors who might be looking for revenge and uh, might make some comments on it in, uh, in Flake's home turf. I guess for those who aren't following along, Jeff Flake's book directly takes on what he calls Trumpism, uh, sort of the anti-immigrant tone, the angry tone, and, and sort of divisive politics. And I'm sure you could expect, uh, uh, they've, they've talked about running a challenger against him. And, and uh, anyway, Mary Jo? Perhaps, Michael, you've answered my question, but why would Trump come to Arizona in August? Usually when there are presidential visits, there's some kind of a theme that they're promoting. Do we have any idea what he would come here to talk about? Not yet. I I really don't know. I mean, I think what you've seen is that he has gone to places where he performed well during the campaign and held, in effect, uh, a reprise of the campaign rallies that he that were so effective when he was running for president. So maybe a thank you tour continues. I think it probably is a thank you tour. And it's also interesting that he's coming here in August because his staffers frequently say how much he loves Arizona but hates the heat. <laughs> and when it's when he gets overheated, he gets a little... Uh, you know, like the rest of us do. He kind of puts him in a foul mood. So it, it's it's funny to me that he's coming here in the hottest month of the year. See, I'm a native, so the hotter it gets, the more delightful I am. <laughs> it worries me for North Korea if the president's going to be in a bad mood in Arizona. <laughs> but, you know, in terms of his visit, I think that this administration clearly has been embattled from almost the start. And as much as anything, it seems like these kinds of events are to serve as a reminder that there are people who still back this administration and back this president. Arizona has been pretty safe turf for him from the start, and I think that that may be part of his thinking as well. It's a reminder that he does have support out in the outer reaches. Before we leave this topic, what do you make, Yvonne, of the talk that he would pardon Arpaio? I wouldn't count it out. Arpaio was one of his staunchest, staunchest supporters early on. Uh, he appeared with him on stage, I think, nearly every time. They have had frequent um, conversations, personal cell phone conversations. 
uh, about uh, border security and illegal immigration. And given the last six months, I wouldn't bet enough. Get the Arizona Republic and azcentral.com delivered to your door, phone, and inbox by visiting subscribe.azcentral.com. Mary Jo, you just reported that investigations into reports of child neglect have dropped 8% over the last year, but that has happened as the number of calls to the child abuse hotline has held steady. What do you make of that? Well, what um, they're doing is they're taking a harder look at some of these phone calls that they receive and deciding that there's really not much there to move on. There was legislation that passed in 2016 that said in certain circumstances you don't have to send an investigator out. That was estimated to lead to a very minimal reduction in um, investigations. At the same time, they commissioned a study. They looked at other calls that had come into the hotline and said, basically, we're wasting our time out here. These families don't need help. The kids aren't in any kind of danger. Um, we've sort of wasted our time being here. Let's be more judicious in what we uh, decide to investigate and focus on the more serious things. It seems like there's always a tension in that agency between how aggressive you go after these reports or do you try to, you know, like you say, conserve resources and just go after like the ones that are apparent that there's a child in danger. How have they struck a balance this time? Well, they, they again point to the study that they had commissioned last year that showed, look, the data shows that, you know, we're sort of um, not getting anything out of this and we're disrupting families coming into their home. And this is happening as there's this larger discussion about how DCS really should have a warrant before they even come into a family's home. Police have to have a warrant before they come into your home on a, an investigation, but it's not, hasn't been the practice if you're coming in to check on the kids. But the tension is, you know, are they leaving something behind where a kid could be in danger? That's always um, a fear. Um, things are going to slip through the cracks because we're human. It's just very hard to tell. I will add that this is coming as DCS has seen um, quite an improvement in a lot of the numbers that they report. You know, they're taking fewer kids away from their families. They're returning more kids to their families. You've got more kids getting adopted. These are you know, at least on the face of it, all very positive trends. And this reduction in investigations fits right in with it. So the agency was remade because of a big backlog in these investigations that needed to happen. Is the feeling that that they had the wrong balance at that time and that's why the backlog occurred? Part of it, because when you looked at all those cases that led to the big controversy back in 2013, most of them didn't result in needing to go out and take a kid away from their home. It was a, a triage that an overwhelmed agency was doing at the time. They set aside the lower priority things and looking at it again with a couple of years perspective, they found that, eh, you know, it wasn't that big of a deal. So it's again, it's part of this pendulum swing and I think we're seeing DCS move more towards leaning towards keeping kids in the home, trying to not disrupt. Yvonne, an expansion of the state's empowerment scholarship accounts program is on hold, as you've reported, and the Secretary of State's office is vetting signatures on a referendum that would allow voters to decide whether it should be implemented. How long is it going to be on hold? 
several weeks at least. Uh, the Secretary of State and county recorders have to go through a signature verification process that will take some time and uh, they will, we will then learn what their total signature count is after they have tossed uh, the signatures of uh, those people who may have signed that didn't fully complete the forms or were kicked off for various other reasons. So people who aren't registered to vote or... Felons, wrong address, the the notary form wasn't filled out right. It could be a variety of reasons. The petition was missing a page, staples were loose and, you know, pages fell out. There's going to be lots of lawsuits, um, it looks like, on, on a lot of these issues. So it will be on hold at least for several weeks and we'll have to wait and see what happens after the final count. Yvonne, can you just quickly go over who the players are? Save Our Schools Arizona is a grassroots group of parents and public education supporters who oppose expansion of the school voucher-like program. They want to refer the matter to the 2018 ballot and allow voters to decide whether or not they want to keep it or not. Opponents of the referendum include American Federation for Children and Americans for Prosperity. These are groups that advocated for expansion and are um, some of the governor's highest profile supporters when it comes to school choice. So once the Secretary of State's office begins vetting those signatures, looking for those things we just talked about, there's immediately some controversy over who gets to be in the room, you know, what what's getting extra scrutiny. Eric Spencer, the state elections Uh, officer decided that he would allow uh, about a dozen people from both sides to observe as the forms are being um, unstapled and scanned into an electronic system. This is a departure from prior years when fewer representatives, typically it sounds like one person really from each side was allowed into the room to watch this process. Both sides actually kind of painted uh, a circus-like atmosphere uh, where you had people tripping over each other. You had uh, opponents of the referendum uh, allegedly ordering staff to, uh, you know, um, put in boxes for further review, petitions that in their view looked like they could be problematic. And this raised concerns with uh, Save Our Schools Arizona, which wants to send this to the ballot, uh, because they they feel as though some of the supporters of the school voucher expansion uh, got an early and unfair look at some of those petitions. So Mary Jo, you're sort of our resident expert on uh, the scrutiny that's given to initiatives and petitions and so forth. What do you make of this? Is this just to be expected every time citizens try to put something on the ballot? I think it is, especially a referendum, which is where citizens are questioning and objecting to the work that their lawmakers did. Um, Usually laws don't get passed and then get fought like this unless there's a lot of uh, strong interests on both sides. So you would expect that kind of scrutiny. What I understand is different this time is, is as Yvonne mentioned, the number of people that are allowed in the room to observe and sort of the, the decorum. I, you know, uh, I talked to someone who observed a referendum in 2013, which was the last time we had one, and people could just stand back and observe. And the early accounts coming out of Secretary of State's office this year was that they were almost hands-on, so a little more chaotic. The official statement that came from the American Federation for Children, which is a dark money group that 
lobbied for uh, this expansion bill, they said they were pleased with the way everything happened and uh, that the Secretary of State's office did um, come down on both sides firmly when they misbehaved or got out of line. So opponents are pleased. Does that mean this isn't going to end up in court? Oh, no, it'll end up in court. We have a standing records request in with the Secretary of State's office and all the communication points towards court. Lots of money, lots of attorneys. The Save Our Schools Arizona folks who want to refer this to the ballot will have to come up with a lot of money to pay for uh, for for these lawsuits. So uh, before we conclude here, I just want to be uh, transparent that we do all our stapling and unstapling with uh, several observers here at the gaggle, just, uh, just to let you know it's on the up and up. And for our final segment, what are you watching for this week? Mary Jo Pitzel? I'm watching two things. Um, I'm looking for public records on which lawmakers and um, and the governor, how many times have they looked for uh, child welfare files, uh, case files on individual cases. And secondly, I'm curious if um, the Republican Party is going to make good on its pledge that it will, after sending a flagpole to the state Democratic Party, which lacks a flagpole, they have said we will come help them install it if needed. I like that. Ron? Uh, of course, I'm interested in who jumps into the uh, ninth district race that Kirsten Cinema may or may not be uh, abandoning. So uh, look for any kind of movement, either by Democrats or Republicans in that race, and any uh, any official move from her uh, to the Senate. Yvonne. I'm looking for a couple of high-profile Democrats to jump into the Secretary of State's race. And will Trump issue the pardon to our pile? Thank you for listening to the Gaggle Podcast. You can find me on Twitter at MG Squires. Mary Jo at Mary J. Pitzel, P-I-T-Z-L. You can follow me at Ronald J. Hansen, H-A-N-S-E-N. And I'm at Yvonne Winget, at Yvonne Winget. Thanks to the politics team and also our producers, Kayla White, Anna Gaber, who grew up in a village in Cyprus, and Manny Lozano. Please subscribe to the show and review it on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or Google Play. We'll see you next week.